Hey there, NASCAR fans. Have you got your copy of the latest edition of NASCAR Pole Position Print Magazine? If not, there's no better time than now to subscribe at PolePositionMag.com. NASCAR Pole Position is the only print magazine covering NASCAR. Officially licensed by NASCAR, NASCAR Pole Position Magazine is published throughout the NASCAR season, and each edition is an instant collector's item, backed with great feature stories and photography. The magazine is even mailed to you in a poly bag for those who love to collect NASCAR memorabilia. At PolePositionMag.com, you can even find past issues available to purchase. Get your subscription to NASCAR Pole Position and get great NASCAR content delivered straight to your mailbox throughout the season. Learn more at PolePositionMag.com. That's PolePositionMag.com. Hey y'all, Rick Houston here, and I want to tell you about my new show, the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast. I've partnered up with the state of North Carolina Department of Natural and Cultural Resources to help uncover the history behind moonshining mountain boys, professional wheelmen, and the backwoods and city lights of the Tar Heel State. In the first episode, I sat down with Winston Kelly at the NASCAR Hall of Fame for a little behind-the-scenes gossip about Junior Johnson's engineering skills. He's got two things in his hand, pipe wrench and channel lock pliers, and they weren't new. They yeah. had been, they had been yeah. around the block a time or two. What's the first deal they built, I bet? No, no, you know, you could, I think they were, they had, the, the pliers had been red before, but paint had worn off. And in the second episode, I talked to a professional hillbilly, a.k.a. Dr. Daniel Pierce of UNC Asheville, to find out the real history of moonshiners and their battles with the revenuers. He wrote about one of his experience of trying to chase down this uh, this bootlegger and this this souped-up car, and he, he complained that the government gave him these piece-of-crap, cheapo cars and that, that were really no match, but he thought he was doing pretty good, and then the guy just hits it and just takes off and practically disappears. But then the guy makes a bootleg turn uh, and comes back towards him. And as he said, it was a game of chicken, and I was the chicken. And so he ran off the road. And actually, he was the guy who, who caught Junior Johnson at his daddy's steal when Junior got tangled up in a, in a barbed wire fence. So check out the Moonshine and Motorsports Racing Podcast, available on YouTube, DailyDownForce.com, and all of your favorite podcasting platforms. And be sure to check out my regular show on NASCAR history, the Scene Vault Podcast. Hello, my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast, your source for all things NASCAR history. Presented by QWare. Maintain excellence. My father-in-law, who is a physician, he threatened to admit me in the hospital for exhaustion and dehydration. A team fired Tommy Ellis and hired me, and to this day, I don't know what the hell they were thinking when they did that. It's just hard. It's very hard to race against your brother. And for a while, we didn't really know how to handle it. We had two cars and three engines and ran the full Xfinity Pro for $225,000. The day NASCAR and all of us associated in any way with NASCAR forget its past, that's the day we don't have any future. Hello, I'm Steve Wade. And my name is Rick Houston, and welcome to the Scene Vault Podcast presented by QWare. And Steve, you and I typically record this podcast on Monday. 
Correct. In a perfect world, <laughs> we record on a Monday. Well, last week we recorded on Monday, just like always. Then I went home and I edited and worked on getting the sound where it needed to be and everything. So went to bed that night and then woke up Tuesday morning and I saw news of what had happened in my hometown of Nashville, Tennessee with all the tornadoes. Yeah. I got to tell you, man, that took the wind out of my sails really, really well, quickly. I can just imagine. Yeah, my heart kind of stopped. And so I immediately jumped on the phone, jumped on social media, and started texting people, calling people, sending messages on Facebook. My best friend from Nashville, Joe Estep, and his mom, Sandy, they came through it okay. Other friends came through it okay. Our buddy, Chase Whitaker, came through it okay. I, I couldn't laugh, but Sandy Estep, Joe's mom, who was on the podcast about a year ago, she lives in Hermitage. And she made it through the storm without any damage whatsoever. But a quarter of a mile from her home, a school, a church, several houses in a neighborhood were leveled. Mm. A quarter of a mile away. That's close. And so I couldn't get in touch with her. And I started texting Joe to see what he knew, to see if everybody was okay. And he finally got back in touch with me, said that he had talked to his mom and that she was okay. But (laughs) Sandy being Sandy, she was without power from Monday night until Friday and then was without TV until Saturday morning. And when she posted on Facebook, I have TV and I can watch the races today. That was... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was her concern that she was going to be able to watch TV to a race fan and, and watch the Xfinity race yeah. in Phoenix and all that. So, yeah, that's what it means to be Sandy Step right there. <laughs> and Steve, I am so glad that my friends and family were okay. My brother Doug still lives in the Nashville area. He was unscathed. Good. So that was a relief to get in touch with everybody and find out that they were okay. But again, my heart goes out to all those people who were impacted so greatly by what happened. Wish them the best. Yes, absolutely. So, Steve, you and I sat down with Jeff Burton on his estate. Estate is the right (laughs) word. Just a couple of days after his and Kim's son, Harrison, had won his very first Xfinity race at California. So the timing couldn't have been any better. No, it could have been any better. And congratulations to the Burton family. (laughs) He was obviously in a good mood. And in this week's installment of the interview, Jeff talks about getting his start in the sport and basically working himself up to and past the point of exhaustion, trying to catch a break. And then he kind of bounced around a little bit between teams while trying to catch that break. The first four years of his career in what is now the Xfinity Series, what was then the Bush Series, his first four years, he was with four different teams. Right. That's called coming up the hard way. <laughs> that's, the, yeah. that's definitely coming up the hard way. And I will say this also, full disclaimer, okay? I asked him a question about a 1-2 finish that he and his brother Ward had, and I said at South Boston. Right. Okay. Well, that 1-2 finish was actually at Myrtle Beach. Now, Steve, (laughs) control yourself. I know that it's hard for you to believe that I made a mistake about anything that happened in the Bush series. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yes. I know that's a shock. (laughs) I'll get over it. (laughs) 
Steve, in our second segment, we are going to go back to the June 17th, 1993 issue of Winston Cup Scene. And Steve, I first thought of this issue because it features coverage of Jeff Burton's Bush Series win over his brother Ward at Myrtle Beach. But then, Steve, once I pulled the issue from the archives, I had to laugh because the Winston Cup race that weekend was held at Pocono, and it was won by Kyle Petty, and Ken Schrader sat on the pole. Hey. And so our last three guests <laughs> played a major role in the news that was taking place that week. 27 years ago. 27 years ago. So I thought that was That's cool. I thought that was pretty impressive yeah. because it says a lot about the caliber of the guests that we're getting <laughs> here on the Scene Vault podcast presented by Cure. Absolutely. <laughs> and Steve, this week we have new Patreon support from Andrew Austin and increased support from Rick Phillips. And Rick's going to get himself a jacket. All right. Oh, how about that, Rick Phillips? Thank with you, man. With his name on it, right? <laughs> yeah, with his name go. on it. Also, I have another stunning piece of news about our Patreon support. We are out. Oh, no. Of Steve Wade cards. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> and I will say this. Our friend Hallie Emery, who has supported us both on Patreon and on PayPal, and Hallie has this YouTube channel called High Octane Cards. And what this channel is, he basically videos himself opening up the different packs of racing cards and everything. And this week, he sent me a message and he said, I've got a full box of 1991 Trax cards. And if you need any extra Steve Wade cards, they're yours. And I said, absolutely. (laughs) Sign me up. Well, he did the first video. Each box has like 36 packs in it. So he's going to break them up. Nine packs, nine packs, nine packs. So he went through the first nine packs. And Steve, he didn't get a single Steve Wade card. Oh, my goodness. He got like 20 Jeff Hammonds. (laughs) (laughs) He got like 20 Jeff. I mean, every pack just about had a... See, that Steve Wade (laughs) card is valuable because it's rare. It's rare, absolutely. Now, there was even a Pappy card in there. He got a a Tom Higgins. He got several Alan Kowickies, Mark Martins, Dale Earnhardt's, but not a single Steve Wade card. So, support us on Patreon, support us on PayPal. Please support QWare. If you've got any maintenance to do in your business, in your office, in your warehouse, please give QWare some consideration and do some business with them. If you have any vintage racing apparel needs, you got a driver t-shirt that you want, go check out Brian Kelb. He can get you hooked up. So, Again, $5 a month, and you'll receive one of these beautiful commemorative issues that we did with Darlington, plus one classic issue of Winston Cup Scene. Do $10 a month, and you'll get two Winston Cup Scenes and the commemorative issue, and do $50 a month, and you will get the Scene Vault podcast jacket. You'll be styling and profiling. One more benefit, something new that we're doing. Hopefully, you've all subscribed to our YouTube channel. And, Steve, this week will be the very first week that we've done a video with the camera that we got. No more cell phones. Brand new camera. (laughs) (laughs) No more cell phone videos. And I think it turned out really, really well. And Tom McCourt, NASCAR man, that guy's a magician with some video. Yeah, I have seen that stuff. Yeah. Unbelievable. Did an awesome job. But subscribe to our YouTube channel and... If you're a Patreon supporter on the interviews that we're doing, 
do $20 a month and you will get an executive producer credit. Do $10 a month. That'll make you a producer. Anything else and you'll be an associate producer. Which, by the way, is the position that I held on Mission Control. <laughs> I'll bring this up again. <laughs> the documentary that you did not suggest of Matt DiBenedetto. <laughs> so, patreon.com slash the scene vault podcast, P A T R E O N dot com slash the scene vault podcast. Or if you would rather just do a one time show of support, paypal.me slash the scene vault podcast. So, Jeff, first things first, we are recording this on Monday, March the 2nd, and, what, two days ago, Harrison made it to Victory Lane for the first time ever. Tell me about that day and what it meant to you personally. Yeah, so for me, um, you know, I've watched Harrison drive since he was four years old, really, in quarter midgets, and and, um, everything Harrison has sat in, he's won in, and he's won um, big races, he's won big championships, and and uh, last year in the truck series, that didn't happen. And uh, it was the first time in his life that he realized that this was, at this level, it's a profession. And that, you know, the world's not going to rally around you. Uh, when things aren't going well, there's a lot of critics. Uh, it was his first time he's ever had to deal with that. And he had to deal with it on a, a pretty high level. Um, and, you know that there's no way that doubt can't creep in. I don't care who you are. I mean, I remember Dale Earnhardt when he was going through one of his droughts, even he, you know, was doubting whether he could do it anymore. And uh, you have a, you know, an 18-year-old that's going through that. And, and I know, because I've, I've seen him race enough, I know he can, he can do it. And, uh, but I could see the doubt creeping in because it's natural. And then I was really curious to see over time – how he would deal with that and, and um, you know, to see what, he, what he's done this year, not just there, but, you know, go run second at, at Daytona, then go run fifth and, and then go win the race. Um, I could see it building, you know what I mean, to, to putting, putting all that behind him. And uh, it, was a, a, it was a step in the process. And, and uh, you know, so to see him kind of get rid of those demons was, was, was awesome. Because uh, I've been through that, and every driver has been through that. I think every athlete's been through that. And and um, how you handle it's 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 really really difficult. It's so much more difficult than people realize for you to doubt yourself, and then have those people around you doubting you. That's really really difficult. And um, you know, for a young man to be going through that, and all the stuff going on in his life, people realize he just graduated from high school. Less than a year ago. Yeah. I mean, you yeah. know, and, and to get thrown into all this is, is a big deal. And um, I'm just really happy for him that he was able to work through those things and get himself where he needed to be. Uh, and then the people around him believing in him and being smart enough. Somebody, somebody drafted um, Tom Brady. He didn't go first. You know, the, the best eyes of talent – can see talent that's there without major championships and those kind of things, right? That's the best people. Anybody can say, anybody could watch uh, Dale Earnhardt drive a race car and say, he was damn good, right? But those people that can look at someone, look at the entire picture of someone 
and ignore a blip on the radar and say that guy has talent. Those are the real eyes of talent. And 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 so for Joe Gibbs and that group over there to recognize that and give him a chance and then then Harrison execute on that. There was a lot of things happening on that one day. And and it was, I was just really really happy for him because of all those things. Now what's Harrison's birthday? Uh he is on October. He's October 2000. Okay. Well, my wife and I have that. twins who were born in <laughs> January of 01. Okay. They, they just graduated high school. Yep. yep. So, speaking of spotting true talent, back in 1988, you run Martinsville, you run both South Boston's and both Orange County races yep. uh, for a team owned by your dad. Yep. How did that work out? You'd been beating around the short tracks in Virginia and all that, but how did it work out that you would move up to the Bush Series? Yeah, so, so um, you know, then – the, the Bush Series would come race at South Boston and race at Orange County and race at Martinsville, places where we were racing. And so you were, you were around those guys, and, and you got to kind of know them a little bit. And, and uh, the Jack Ingrams and the Tommy Houstons and the Tommy Ellises and those guys, uh, I mean, you could walk right up to them and talk to them. You know what I mean? And they would take time to talk to you. And, and uh, they were at your home track, but they were the big show. Right. So if you wanted to take the next step, uh, that was the next step. And and to go run a, a, a bush race at South Boston, at Orange County, at Martinsville. So although they had the advantage in understanding those cars and knowing more about those cars, you knew that track better. And it was it was you'd have these battles. Right. You'd have the hometown hero that was beaten. That was trying to beat the national champions. You're right. And it was. So it was the na- it was the natural progression, um, and and you know my father was you know my father always believed that his kids could do anything that they set their mind to do. He always believed that and always instilled that in us, and told us we'd have to work hard to do it. But he would always support us in those things, and and he saw he saw early that his children and my, we have another one, Brian, uh, one more races than Ward and I ever did, uh, go kart races. Uh, he, my dad saw that we could do it. And so he would, kept trying to give us opportunities. And the next opportunity was to, to, to build a bush car. Uh, we built it and, and Jay Hedgecock built the chassis for us. And, and, uh, we built the car and our, finished the car in our shop. And we went and raced against Jack Ingram and Sam Ard and all those guys. It was, it was, it was a really cool time. So you say that you went up to Tommy Ellis and said, "Hey, I need some help getting." What was Tommy Ellis's reaction? <laughs> so, so I actually went. So, so Tommy was always really cool to me. Like Tommy, I went to Tommy's shop. I drove, so you're the one. <laughs> oh yeah, I drove to Tommy's shop in Richmond, and and uh, he took some time and and talked to me. He had a car. Now he had a car he's trying to sell me, but nonetheless, uh, <laughs> he took some time and yeah. and um, Tommy was Tommy was. He was a hard racer, but he was always good to me. And I actually, for some unknown reason, I a team fired Tommy Ellis and hired me. And to this day, I don't know what the hell they were thinking when they did that. But <laughs> but even yeah. after that, even yeah. after that, Tommy was always good to me. And and um, yeah, I, I, but that so those those men, you know, I raced against some really hard nosed late model guys, um, Wayne Pattersons and and. Barry Beggarly's and those guys, they were, they were just hard-nosed racers. And that's who taught me how to race. And then you'd go race against Jack Ingram, and you'd go race against Tommy Houston, and you'd race against L.D. Ottinger and those guys, and they taught you there's a whole other level. Because with those guys, um, 
you were, if you were battling for a position, you were battling for food on the table. They were racing for a living. They owned their own teams. They had small teams. They went and got their sponsors. And that third spot was money. And that third spot, you, if you were racing them for them, they treated it like that. And the late model thing was not that way. Nobody was making a living late model racing. But they were all making a living running bush cars. And so they taught you, they taught you what it was like to race for a living and be hungry, Right. They didn't have big budgets. They weren't millionaires. They were they were racing to get by, and doing and doing something they loved to do. But it was, it was uh, dualies and open trailers, and you know it was it was old school racing. The next year, nineteen eighty nine, you pretty much do a full schedule yep. except for Daytona at the beginning of the year, and then Richmond. You missed that race yep. in the fall. Was that part of the plan to skip those races, or what? actually happened there so so daytona yes we we i wasn't eligible to run daytona uh and we didn't have the funding to 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 have a speedway car you know we were for us to go down there we would have had to go down there with we had two cars we had two cars and three engines that's and ran the full xfinity program uh for two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars think about that wow so yeah so uh, some teams no one's getting that for one race today but two races <laughs> I mean, we ran the whole series <laughs> yeah, so yeah so uh yeah we were not i wasn't eligible to run daytona in richmond we just missed it you know it was more cars there than there were spots and we just missed it and uh and went home 1990 you go to drive for sam art and sam is a personal hero of yeah. mine i wrote the book on the history of the nascar bush series and got to know him and his family really well tell me about working with him yeah, so so the shop was behind Sam's house, and so I got to know Joe and and uh, Robert and and his daughter. Got to know them. Um, Robert was working on the team, um, and you know Sam was. Um, we we combined we combined teams. So I had some cars and equipment. He had some cars and some equipment, and um, we combined teams in an effort to try to do it as inexpensively as we could. And and because neither one of us really had the funding we needed to do it right, but if we combined forces, we could do it. And um, so I went there not as just a driver. I worked on the cars every day. Um, you know, I built the pit box. I was there working. And to go there, um, and and a young man named Stacy Pereira that races late models today, uh, he was there working. And a guy named Tommy Boyles who is who. Uh, worked with the Bush boys when they were very young. He's good friends with Tom Bush. He was there, so it's a small it's a small world. And and um, so, but we were working. We were understaffed for sure, uh, trying to get by. We were working long, long hours, and um, it was it was the hardest year I ever had in racing. Um, it just you know it was. We did win a I won my first race with Sam at Martinsville. Uh, and it felt like a weight that had been lifting off my shoulders. But but a couple months prior to that, my father-in-law, who is a physician, he uh, he threatened to admit me in the hospital for for exhaustion and dehydration. Did he really? Because wow. I was it just I had worked myself to the point. Never in my life did I question what I wanted to do, except for then. And and I had worked and worked and worked so hard, and it was just it felt like it was one failure after the next. And I worked myself to the point of physically exhausted, and and 
and I went to see I went to see my father-in-law. I said, "Man, I feel horrible." And uh, at that point, it was my we weren't Kim and I weren't married, but I'm like, I I feel horrible. And I went to see him, and I went into his office, and he's like, "Boy, what's wrong with you?" I said, "Well, that's why I'm here." And and he's like, "Man, you got to get some sleep. You gotta you gotta get some. You gotta eat. You gotta. I mean, it was I was I had got myself in a bad spot, but but it was just from work, you know, trying to trying to succeed." And uh, that was that was probably the hardest year I ever had. So you go from that point of literally exhaustion to you get to the top of the mountain, so to speak, at Martinsville. Yeah. What do you remember about that day? <sighs> so I can tell you that I can I, I what I remember the most, and this sounds crazy to say, but I remember the most is the next day. Okay. And I woke yeah. up and I felt like a completely different person, which is you know which tells you how strong your mind is. Um, I felt, I woke up and I couldn't believe how good I felt. I couldn't believe how focused I was. I couldn't believe that I, I was in the shape that I was because I had worked, I was really not in a good position prior to that. And it taught, that was, that, that to me was kind of this aha moment that, you know, your mind is really, really strong. And that, you know, you want something so bad that you're working so hard that you're actually, you know, you can't hurt yourself by, by, by I don't want to say caring too much, but, but not understanding how to care and how to deal with all the things that are going on around you. Um, it was just, it was one of those moments in my life that, you know, winning that race was a big deal on that day. And on that day, I remember, you know, Davey Allison coming to Pit Road, coming to Victory Lane. Um, I didn't really know Davey that well, but, but he came to victory lane he came to see me did he in really victory lane wow. to say congratulations you know and and um things like that the following year i think it was the following year the year after is actually two years later i um pretty sure it was two years later i wrecked a wrecked car at dover in qualifying and and davy to this day i don't know how he found me but he my hotel room was in my hotel room the phone rang it was Davey Allison asked me if I wanted to drive his car because we didn't have a backup car. We were out of the race. So I actually started wow. Davey Allison's okay. car. And, um, and uh, he had it. As I'm getting in the car to go run the, car, go run the race, he says, hey, Jeff, by the way, this, do you see these guys right here? And I said, yeah. He said, they bought this car, so don't wreck it. <laughs> so, so, but, but, you know, Davey coming to me in victory lane at Martinsville on that day is something, you know, I didn't know Davey Allison, but he took time. Here, here he is, a superstar. He took time out of his day to come congratulate me, and that was, that was cool. 1991, you drive the 99 car for John Jackson, the old Tommy Ellis car. 92, you move over to Phil Martossi's yep. team. That's four teams in four years. Well, it's How? worse than that. Okay. So, and, so in several of those things, I got fired. You know, <laughs> yeah. Like you know, Sam's thing ended ended uh, not pretty. It was a there was a there was a lawsuit. Um, you know, and that thing that thing went we it went to court um, uh, with Sam or yeah with Sam. Okay, and, and uh, so so I left I, I left the team my first full year. I was with my 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 late model guys. We went Xfinity racing. We just didn't have the experience. I recognized that. Decided here was this opportunity with Sam. We went and did that. That ended poorly. So I had strife with the first one. I had strife with the second one. I go drive for for Bill uh, Bill Papke and John Jackson. Uh, last race of the year, they tell me I'm not coming back. 
uh, it, you know, it was, what the hell, you know, like this three years in a row of, of conflict. And, and, um, and I tell people all the time, you know, I got, I got, I got fired. I got whatever, you know, like three years in a row, ended up in court, got fired, blah, 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 three years in a row. And I'm thinking, what, you know, is it worth it? You know what I mean? Like, like I love racing and I wasn't questioning whether I wanted to do that, but I'm like, what am I, you know, there's something wrong here. And then got the chance with Martasi and that came late. Like I was, I was, um, I had, we had one car left and, uh, I was working on that car in the basement of my dad's construction company, getting it ready for something. But, and when I wasn't doing that, I was on the phone trying, calling people, calling people, calling people. And out of the blue, I got a call from, uh, from Phil Martasi saying, Hey, you know, David Green was driving the car, and uh, for whatever reason, they wanted to do something different, and we're going to go to Daytona. You want to drive it? I'm like, well, hell yeah. And it was a one-race deal, right? <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. A, we're only going to do one race. It went down there and ran pretty good. Then it's, well, let's go the next race. And that went pretty good. Well, let's go the next race. And then five or six weeks later, it's like, well, let's run the whole thing. You know, so <laughs> it, was, it, was a weird, it was a weird four or five years. Well, you're in the number eight car at New River Valley. Mm-hmm. And you go to victory lane. Yep. But then there is a disqualification. Yep. And the win goes to Bobby Dodder. What happened? So when, when prior to, to recently when they started taking wins away, Dale Jarrett and I, were the, to our knowledge, were the only two <laughs> National Touring Series yeah. winners that had our wins taken away. And, uh, yeah, why we, got, why we got that, I don't know. But So we had, a, we had an illegal rear end. The, you know, the, the – uh, the uh, the rule said you had to have a Detroit locker typer in, and we didn't. And um, so race is over. They and they check it every week. Like it's not a it's not a question whether they're going to check it. That's that's standard protocol. They're going to take the rear end out. It was illegal. It was wrong. And uh, um, they they DQ'd us. So South Boston, June nineteen ninety three. There was a one lap shootout to the checkered flag and you and your brother Ward come across the stripe beating and banging and Ward's almost upside down trying to get by you, but you win. That's about the way that you remember it, isn't it? <laughs> I'm sitting there thinking, what race is that? <laughs> hey, don't let the facts get in the way of a good story. Yeah. Ward, and I, Ward and I finished first and second multiple times, and, and uh, for some reason I, was, I came out the winner in all those things. I don't know why it worked out that way, but, yeah, that South Boston Xfinity race or Bush race then um, – they just paved South Boston, and um, and it was um, I lost power steering, and people people think oh power steering oh, yeah, yeah. you know Dale Earnhardt when he drove he first didn't have power steering well yeah but when you set the car he was up, a real man yeah when you set the <laughs> car up to have power steering and you lose it that's a whole nother ball game but we won that race with uh, with no power steering in, in my hometown. Which is really cool because my 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 brother Brian and all of his friends um, at at South Boston in the middle of three and four that was uh, that was their section and they had this big group of people and it was a third they would call themselves a third turn brew crew and I mean they have a hell of a party every Saturday night we were racing or the bush races we'd come back and race and to win at your home track in an in an Xfinity race bush race was really big that was a big deal and. Um, that was that was one of the highlights of my career is winning in front of those guys because they were there, they were there supporting Ward and I when we were we were late model racing. 
and and I remember uh, one of the one of the my competitors that that uh, we had gotten into a tangle, and um, they loaded their car up. And he told me this the next week. They were loading their car up, and they were leaving the race and uh, going down the access road that you would leave to leave the pits with. And they said when they got to this gate, all these people started coming out and cussing at them. And they're like, <laughs> they, yeah. we got scared. You know, they're like, get the hell out of here. That was the third turn brew crew. You know what I mean? And they were, they were trying to create a hometown advantage for us. Now, from what I understand from a really popular podcast produced by another driver turned television commentator, I'm not going to give Dale Jr. any more uh, attention than than he already has. But there had been, from what I understand, some tension between you and Ward earlier in your careers. How much did that day help or maybe hurt? Or had it already been resolved? Yeah, so, you know, Ward's Ward's five and a half years older than I am. So so he's the oldest of three, and – when you have to th- remember this, when Ward was 16, I was 10, right? So, so Ward was doing things that I didn't, you know, at 10 years old, I didn't know what the hell is he doing, right? And I'm at 10, and he's like, what the hell is he doing, right? So we had, and we have our interests are way different. We like different things, so we're very different people. And then, on top of that, you put competition into it, and and you know the problem with racing racing with family is that you don't race with them you race against them right and so it's hard and then we you know we typical brother stuff you know what I mean and then uh, we got in that altercation to South Boston in the late model race where uh, to this day we disagree whose fault it was and we always will we'll be fighting about it when we'll our our grandchildren will be fighting about whose fault it was (laughs) but but yeah um you know that was a moment there that you know at South Boston that although the racetrack liked it, because I think they sold out the next week, uh, you know, it was something that we got ourselves into that we shouldn't have, and uh, we didn't always handle racing well against each other. And then um, it's just hard. It's very hard to race against your brother. And for a while, we didn't really know how to handle it. We Then we got our stuff together, and we did figure it out. And then toward the end of Ward's career, um, he was not driving good race cars, and and uh, I was, and and that only adds more tension because I I don't care. They're gonna compare. They compare my son to me. They compare my son to his nephew, his his cousin. They compare my son to Ward. When you are when you're racing and you have family, they're always gonna compare you to them. Always. And Ward lives in a small town, and I, I we both live in a small town. I moved here during my Cup career, but every day, every day. You know, in in South Boston, Virginia, you get compared to each other, and and uh, it 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 wears on you. You get your first start in Winston Cup with Phil, I think, in 1993. Yeah. But then in 1994, you go full time with the Savoia brothers. Was there ever a plan to go into Cup racing with Phil, or did you get an option from the Savoia? So so um, Phil was going to run that race. Uh, he had he had done a deal with Jack Roush to to rent a car, and um, and I don't think that I was their first choice. I think they were looking for other options, and and uh, and I got with Phil and kind of talked to him. I feel like I put some pressure on him and talked him into it, and we went there and qualified well. I think we qualified sixth uh, and had a good car in the race, and and then um, 
Phil was actually spotting. The car owner was actually spotting. And on lap three or four, he called me clear. And and uh, that was the day I learned there's only one driver of the car, and I wasn't. <laughs> yeah. And I wrecked Ken Schrader, and I wrecked myself. And, and, uh, and um, yeah, that wasn't good. But I finished the day. I drove for Junior Johnson. Hutch Strickland got sick. He was driving. He was Hutch Strickland got – he had food poisoning from the night before. And, or they think that's what it was. And, and he got sick. And so I started my first cup race, wrecked early, and finished my first cup race driving for Junior Johnson. I didn't know. Man. Yeah. It was, I, I think – you have to check this. I think I was the first rookie that they allowed to be a substitute driver. Remember, it used to be a rule. You couldn't have a substitute driver, couldn't be a rookie. Uh, and they let me do it because I had more laps there than the cup guys yeah. did because of running, <laughs> yeah. running bush races. yeah. yeah. Hey, Scene Vault Podcast listeners, this is Eric Quinn from QWare. The 2020 NASCAR season is underway, and we've seen some really awesome racing so far this year, and awesome NASCAR history is being made. The Scene Vault Podcast is also making history. Not only are Rick and Steve providing some of the best NASCAR interviews available, they're creating some amazing video content as well. At QWare, we are even more excited to be involved with the Scene Vault Podcast in 2020. If you're wondering what QWare is, we provide the most powerful, simple-to-use, cloud-based facilities management system available. If you get a chance, check us out at QWareCMMS.com. That's Q-W-A-R-E-C-M-M-S.com. And just take a look and see what we can do for your facilities maintenance team. Whether you're working in an office, at a factory, at a church, or school, or a healthcare facility, or some other kind of building, QWare can help your facilities team be at the top of their game. Check us out, qwarecmms.com. And now let's get back to the podcast. Steve, when you think of Jeff Burton, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? The mayor of the garage, <laughs> the NASCAR diplomat. I think that Jeff Burton has a very rational approach to everything about racing. And what he has learned and done over the years has given him enough experience to not only deal with racing, but to deal with racing issues. And he reached the point where many of us in the media wanted complete and solid answers to the issues of the day. We had right for Jeff Burton. And as a matter of fact, he was named NASCAR Illustrated's Person of the Year okay. for a special issue of the magazine. And there was a picture that we ran on the cover of Jeff standing beside his car with a helmet. And the only two words on the page were, the diplomat. And that was a very special issue. Now, ask me what comes to my mind when I think of Jeff Burton. <laughs> okay, what comes to your mind when you think of Jeff Burton? I want my money. <laughs> okay, now let me explain that. Yeah. When my first book came out, Second to none, the history of the NASCAR Bush Series. It got a lot of attention in the garage and the Bush Series competitors especially. But Jeff came to me one day and he said, how can I get one of your books? And I said, well, I'll get you hooked up. And he said, what do you want in return? And I told him, I said, well, you know, you're doing pretty good on the racetrack right now, especially in the Bush Series. So tell you what, I'll give you one of these books if and when you win, you mention the book in Victory Lane. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And he said, sure, yeah, that'll be great. So I gave him the book. He won some races. 
Never mentioned my butt. <laughs> he broke the oral contract. <laughs> What's he supposed to do in victory lane? I put a microphone in front of him and they say, Jeff, how did it go out there today? It went just fine. Please buy Rick Houston's book. Is well, you it? know, no, it doesn't have to be like that. He could have gone, how's it feel to win this race? Well, you know, it feels awesome. And now I'm a part of NASCAR Bush Series history. And that might mean that I'll be in the next edition of Second to None. <laughs> yeah, history I'm of the sure Na- he's going to say that. Uh, well, but evidently he, he right. didn't. <laughs> so, by the way, I've got it figured, okay? With penalties and late fees and interest <laughs> and all that, he now owes me the exact amount that it would cost to digitize the scene arc. <laughs> Just by coincidence. (laughs) I don't think you're going to get it. (laughs) Well, you know what? I don't think I will either. (laughs) But Jeff talked about the 1990 season that he ran with Sam Ward, who was a huge part of the Second to None book. And he also talked about how he basically worked himself into a meltdown. Which, given the circumstances that he was working in, not very surprising. No. When you're trying to get your career off the ground and you're trying to get noticed and you're trying to do the best that you can, you go to great lengths. You go to very, very great lengths. And Jeff certainly was. And he said that he was not sleeping. He wasn't eating. He was basically wearing himself into complete exhaustion. And he went to his future father-in-law, Kim's dad, who was a physician, and her dad basically wanted to put him in the hospital. Right. Yeah, absolutely. That's how bad it was. Well, then he goes and wins the Bush Series race at Martinsville. And, Steve, we've talked about other people overcoming a lot of adversity. Bobby Labonte comes to mind, yeah. winning his first Winston Cup race just months after dealing with Gray's disease the previous off season. That comes to mind. Several others come to mind. Larry McReynolds bouncing from team to team and all that. But – In this particular case, Jeff is working himself to the bone, and at Martinsville, what would amount to one of his home tracks, because it's there in Virginia where he's from, what do you think it meant to Jeff to get that first win? I think it was a huge sense of relief and a huge sense of accomplishment and satisfaction. had to be. And, Steve, a driver connection that I did not know about was Davey Allison kind of taking Jeff under his wing and going to see him in that Martinsville victory lane. I didn't know that either. And Jeff said that he had never really had that much contact with Davey, but there Davey was in victory lane. And then a couple of years later, in the fall of 1992, Jeff wrecks his car in qualifying at Dover, and he doesn't have a backup. And so he goes back to the motel and – basically not thinking he's going to get to race the next day. And he winds up getting a call in the hotel room that night. And it's Davey asking Jeff if he would like to drive Davey's car in the race the next day. I think Davey knew how hard Jeff had worked to get in a position to win a race. And he respected him for it. And he wanted to let him know that he respected him and wanted to help him. Can you think of any other driver-mentor relationships out there that we might not quite remember? I think the one that's most obvious, I don't know if you would call it driver mentor. I think you would call it a very close association and friendship. And of course, that was Dale Earnhardt and Neil Bonnet. Now, remember yeah, yeah. that Dale helped Neil's driving career mm-hmm. when Neil came back from his injuries. Right, yeah. Actually got him a couple of Earnhardt cars to drive in selected events. So there's a relationship that I think was very close to what Jeff and Davey had. And certainly 
was more well-known among the media and fans. Here's one that just kind of popped into my brain, David Green and Bobby Labonte, because yeah. because David kind of got bounced from the, <laughs> the TIC financial card with Phil Martasi, and he went 1992 without a ride, and David spent 1992 basically spotting for Bobby. And when Bobby Labonte went Winston Cup racing with Bill Davis in 1993, David Green hopped into the 44 yeah. Bush Series car and eventually won the championship in right. 1994. You know, I'm convinced that a lot of what we just talked about has been going on in the stock car racing oh, yeah. Yeah. for years. It just hasn't been as prominent. Right. But I think that every week you can look and see somebody doing something different and special for somebody else to help out. Yeah. I know it sounds corny, but I think over the years it's been proven time and time again that stock car drivers form a brotherhood of eternity. And while they don't get along sometimes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, they certainly are not adverse to helping when help is needed. Steve, Jeff Burton goes to New River Valley up in Radford, Virginia. Jeff wins the race, but then winds up getting disqualified for an illegal rear end assembly. And I'm going to be honest with you. I was kind of surprised. Jeff did not seem too bent out of shape about losing that victory. He was very matter of fact about it. Well, well, you know, I think in the Bush series, correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. in the Bush series, uh, disqualifications were done. Yes. Whereas in yeah. Winston Cup, yeah. uh, no. You yeah. know, well, it's ball. just the Bush series. <laughs> well, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> well, we won't go there. <laughs> but, you know, when the media asked about disqualifications in general, the, the answer always was that NASCAR didn't want to see the fans leave the racetrack without knowing who the yeah. winner was. Yeah. Okay. Well, that certainly didn't apply in this, in this case. Yeah. But Jeff, I've talked about him being, you know, a diplomat type of person. Well, I think Jeff realized, okay, the... We had the illegal rear end assembly, and we paid for it. We had to yeah. pay for it. Yeah. And that, let's go on. And the person that you kind of have to feel sorry for in this whole scenario is Bobby Dodder. Because, Steve, that was the only race that he ever, ever won. won in the Bush Series, and he didn't get to enjoy Victory Lane. Uh, I did not know that. No, no. That's the only race that he won in the Bush Series. So you kind of got to feel for old Bobby. <laughs> Yeah, I certainly do. The next year, Steve, the 1993 race at Myrtle, Myrtle Beach, Beach. <laughs> <laughs> that Jeff won over Ward. And Steve, there was evidently a time when Jeff and Ward weren't exactly singing the same song out of the same hymnal. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, but they weren't exactly on the same page. That's a brother dynamic. Yeah. It's a family dynamic. At least some of that can be attributed to an age difference. Well, siblings don't always get along. Yeah. But when yeah. siblings are competitive and trying yes. to win yes. and yeah. facing each other, yeah. there are going to be times when they really don't get along. <laughs> and what I thought was interesting is the fact that Ward is about six years older than Jeff, so they grew up in completely different circles of friends, experiences, so forth. And six years is the difference between me and my brother. Really? Yes. My younger brother. And I got to tell you, if we had been driving race cars, I don't know that either one of us would have ever made it back to the checkered flag. <laughs> so, so for Jeff and Ward to even run races and even finish, 
<laughs> says that they're better people than me and my brother. <laughs> Steve, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter at Speedway Screens, at Speedway Screens, and check out his inventory at SpeedwayTSJ.Etsy.com. That's E-T-S-Y.com. You will not be disappointed. You will not be disappointed. This week, Steve, Brian posted an early 1980s Bill Elliott t-shirt. <laughs> <laughs> you, <laughs> this was pre-Coors days, and Steve, again, he just comes up with the darndest stuff, and yeah, he does himself a great business. Absolutely. So, again, follow Brian Kelb on Instagram and Twitter, at Speedway Screens, and check out his inventory at speedwaytsj.etsy.com. Steve, the June 17th, 1993 issue of Winston Cup scene carried coverage of the Pocono race. Kyle Petty pretty much dominated. Yeah, I would say so. <laughs> that event. And he did so after riding his motorcycle throughout the Northeast. <laughs> I know that's a surprise that Kyle Petty was on his motorcycle. <laughs> But this was evidently quite the journey. He and crew chief Robin Pemberton and a couple of their buddies left North Carolina for the race weekend in Dover. And then they went to New York City for the night. And then they went to Portland, Maine. And after that, they headed for New Hampshire, where Kyle tested the car that he drove to victory at Pocono. Then they went to Sarasota Springs. Good <laughs> heavens. And finally, they landed in Pocono. <laughs> Now, Steve, have you ever ridden a motorcycle? No, I never have. Have you ever you. been on the Kyle Petty's trip? No. The motorcycle trip? No. Ever followed along in the caravan? No. I got to be honest no, with you. No. But several scene staffers yes. in the past were yeah. always there. Deb Williams went on it right. one year. Jim Fluharty, I know, has been on it. I think Phil Cavelli. I'm surprised they didn't leave him off in Death Valley somewhere. <laughs> 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 but... That is such a neat trip. I'm not a motorcycle rider. If I do ride a motorcycle, I want to get a Harley Davidson tricycle. Okay. One of those three wheel yeah, deals. Uh -huh. I want to be hardcore, but I want to be sensible about it. I understand that. <laughs> You've even got more courage to do that than I do because I just have a real problem with the only thing between me and the asphalt, if that motorcycle turns over, is some leather and a lot of skin. <laughs> Well, Steve, evidently there is an allure to it. I've not exactly gotten bit by that bug. But again, if I've got a tricycle, I might give it a shot. Yeah, okay. Go might give it. it a shot. And to be honest with you, I don't know that I wouldn't like to do the charity ride in a car. I could be following along. Okay. Yeah, that's a good idea. Of course, they probably make fun of the car riders. or <laughs> yeah, There's probably a rivalry there or whatever. But once they did wind up in Pocono for this race... The race was over. Oh, God. <laughs> Kyle Petty led this event seven times for a total of 148 laps. Hmm. Okay. Of the 200 that were run that day. 
That's called a good old-fashioned country fanny kicking. That was a butt kicking. <laughs> and Steve, he later dedicated the victory to his friend Alan Koicki, who had won the final race of his career the year before in this event right. at Pocono. And Kyle said in this race lead, Alan flew with us on Sunday night after every race, just about. It was never a happy ride when he won the race because he let you know that he won the race. <laughs> you think? <laughs> <laughs> to go to a racetrack where he was the defending champion and to know that after the race was over, we got on a plane and flew back to North Carolina together. And now to come back at this point in time and win the race, it's special to me and it always will be special to me. Which is absolutely no surprise. Okay, now this was in mid-June, and of course, Alan had lost his life in a plane crash on April 1st, right. earlier that year, just a couple months before. So, Steve, this is how close Kyle and Alan were. Kyle continued, and he said, Alan and I were friends. We did things together that nobody knows, and we argued a lot together. I slammed him down on a bench at Michigan one year, so we went back a pretty good ways. <laughs> slammed him down on the bench. What happened? What happened with this deal at Michigan? What was going on? I have no idea, but I oh. know Alan, uh, being uh, the uh, perfectionist he always was, Yeah, he could get on your nerves. <laughs> <laughs> now, here's a piece of trivia for you. This win for Kyle was the first on a super speedway for the number 42 since his grandfather, Lee Petty, won the inaugural Daytona 500 in 1959. I did not know that. Now, this race lead was written by Deb Williams, and Deb is the queen of detail. If she could get a detail like this in her story, <laughs> it was going to get there. <laughs> Now, again, Ken Schrader won the pole for this race, and he finished second to Kyle 4.9 seconds back. Yeah, from here to eternity. <laughs> and, Steve, this was Ken Schrader's fourth straight top five finish, and he had also finished second in the Winston Open at Charlotte, which transferred him into the Winston All-Star race, and he finished fourth in that race. So yeah, he was definitely Yeah, he was definitely on a hot streak. He said in the sidebar that was written, he said, I ain't worried about a win. I ain't worried about none of that stuff. It's just run as fast as you can. When the day comes that we're the fastest car, we're going to win. Good philosophy. <laughs> I'd rather be the best, but second best is the next best place. The team is just doing awful good. This makes five or six in a row that they're bringing us home in the top five. The car runs good, handles good, stays together. Nothing falls off, and they get us in and out of the pits all day. And you can't ask for much more than that. You cannot. Now, there is something about this race I think everybody needs to know. There was a very strange incident. Some guy who had been drinking beer since 3 o'clock in the morning. Was that this race? That's right. He jumped the wall from the camping area, <laughs> ran out onto the track. And Kyle said, he saw him. He said, have you ever seen a deer looking at the headlights? That's yeah. what this guy looked like. And That's Kyle, the race where he ran across on, the on. track. Yeah. yeah, and he jumped over. Jumped over the, the outside wall. Outside wall, but they got him. They Good. nabbed him, and he got charged with two felonies and four misdemeanors, and was placed on a $20,000 bond, which is pretty steep for back then. Well, they should have just simplified things and charged him with being stupid. Well, <laughs> I think being stupid is something we could all be charged with every now and then. 
<laughs> but yeah, that was the incident where the guy ran across the track. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Good night, man. Yeah. I did not know that that was... That was the risk. And, you know, when you think about the consequences, had he been hit, I yeah. mean... Oh, well, yeah. It's just... Yeah. yeah. And that was that was during the race. This was yeah. not under caution no. or uh-huh. anything like that. Yeah, it, that would not have ended pretty at all. That's the cup race at Pocono, and then we go to Myrtle, Myrtle Beach. <laughs> where Jeff held Ward off in a two-lap shootout to the checkered flag and kind of had fun with Jeff a little bit and said, you know, Ward was up on the wall and he was about turned upside down and all that. Nah, I don't know. Ward finished 1.6 seconds behind Jeff. But Jeff said, I will take a 1-2 finish by the Burtons. I'll even switch off with him and finish second. One out of ten times. (laughs) Maybe. And here's a sign of the times for you. When this race was run at Myrtle Beach, Ward was 31 years old. 31 years old, and Jeff was 25. Ward was still another year away from his Mm -hmm. first full-time Winston Cup ride. And so 31 years old, and you consider how drivers are moving up so quickly. Today. Today. And so much younger. Yes. I mean, you're talking 20, 21 years old. And if you're not in a competitive situation by 25, 26. But what has taken place since that time yeah. is the uh, philosophy and the attitude of the owners. Yeah. Since the oncoming of Jeff Gordon, they have been willing to gamble on younger drivers. Yeah. And a lot of those gambles have been paying off. Steve, in the scene on the circuit section, there was an item about thieves and vandals breaking into four shops while teams were in Dover. Five cars at the Allen Quickie Racing Shop were broken into and sprayed with a fire extinguisher on June 6th. And Richard Bostick, who was the truck driver for Kenny Wallace's Sabco Racing Team, he had his personal vehicle stolen. Dave Rezendiz, who was a Bush Series driver at the time, his shop was hit. Steve, all three of those shops were side-by-side near Charlotte Motor Speedway. (laughs) And evidently, the person who did this crime, stole a car phone from one of the vehicles and and made calls on the phone. (laughs) Real intelligence there. Police traced them and actually determined the person's identity. Now, I don't know what happened from there, but they used the cell phone and hopefully got caught. And Steve, it doesn't end there. The next day, June 7th, thieves struck Joe Gibbs Racing for the fifth time in two years. In two years. Okay. What's no, I'm on? thinking. I'm thinking somebody at Joe Gibbs Racing in charge of security. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Five times, you know. I, I was thinking maybe once or twice, maybe. But you know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. You know. But they stole several items there at Joe Gibbs Racing and caused about ten thousand dollars in damage. And Steve, they got into the hauler, and two of Dale Jarrett's helmets were stolen from the team's transporter, one that featured the NFL logo that Dale Jarrett had worn during the 1992 Daytona 500, and that was the first race ever Mm, for Joe Joe Gibbs Racing. And the other one that was stolen was painted in Philadelphia Eagles colors. Now, I'm sure they returned that one. (laughs) (laughs) uh, Note that Rick said that. And Steve, here's an item that I can't even begin to describe. This was in the pit pass section. The year before, Davey Allison had had his terrible accident at Pocono. 
that we know so well from YouTube yeah. videos turned over 12, 13, 14 times in the space of a couple of seconds, was hurt very, very badly. And this time he was back at Pocono. This was the first race at Pocono that he had run since that accident. And Steve, he was thrilled to be in so much better shape. He said in this pit pass item, he said, I don't have any damaged shoulder muscles, no damaged ribs, no intestinal parasite (laughs) trying to eat my insides, all of which I had when I came here last July. And Steve, he said in this item, and it is amazing to me how some of these can be so Foreboding. Foreboding. Yeah. We talked about last year when we were doing the commemorative issue at Darlington. Of course, Darlington 1993 was Alan Kowicki's last race. And the last sentence of the sidebar the week before about Alan was, there'll be a day when we'll come back and we'll do a better job or something to that effect. Right. But Steve, in this item, Davey was quoted as saying, I told them last year that my takeoffs and my landings were much smoother in helicopters and airplanes than they were in race cars. Well, we all know what happened. Yeah. And when I saw that, my, yeah. I don't know, man. I, it, it, that just jumped off the page because that's how Davey wound up As, losing his yeah. life was in a that helicopter year, crash. Think about yeah. It. Less than a month later. This issue date is June 17th, 1993. And less than a month later, yeah. he lost his life after a helicopter crash at Talladega when he was landing yeah and he just talked about how much smoother his landings and takeoffs were that's yeah that's hard to explain hey i'm randy lajoy you're listening to the scene vault podcast Steve, we need six more iTunes reviews, and we will have 100 written reviews on iTunes, all of them four or five stars. Right. Great reviews. Once we get to 100 written reviews on iTunes, we will be giving away copies of every NASCAR book that I've ever written and that you've ever written. So if you're out there and you're listening, please help us out on Patreon. Please help us out on PayPal, or if you can't do that, Help us out by writing us a review on iTunes, a good review on iTunes, and there's a pretty good chance that you'll be walking away with some pretty doggone good NASCAR books. And mine, by the way, went through six printings. (laughs) (laughs) You were going to say it or I was one. (laughs) Dave Rezendiz's Bush Series Shop. Dave Rezendiz's Bush Series the bush the bush the bush the bush series shop of days well we would know what's going to be on the blooper reel this week 